Hello and welcome to episode 27 of Airs for Architecture with me, Ambrose Gillick. I'm talking today to Stephanie Rhodes, director of the London-based architectural practice Gatti Routh Rhodes, about her journey to and through architecture, her design process and practice, and the everyday reality of being a really good architect. I think one of the things that is really important about our practice is that we, you know, the designs emerge very much out, out of conversation and argument and experiment. And, you know, we build models and, well, Richard and Tom build models. I, I don't so much. I, I do drawings and um, we sort of all design in quite a different way. And that, that sort of complements really well. And, you know, you do sort of research on the materials and on the references and you have discussions and you just really, you sort of bash this thing about. You really push and pull and push and pull and then try things out and do something else and do do it again and, and sort of move it around and present it to the client and talk about it and present it at consultation and it's it's sort of um it's malleable it's something that that forms that emerges slowly that sort of sort of peels away to to become what it then is and and where it sort of starts feeling like there, there is no other way that it could be in a way a is for architecture a podcast about architecture buildings urban culture and space Hello and welcome to Airs for Architecture. I'm talking today to Stephanie Rhodes. Um, Stephanie, would you be so kind as to introduce yourself? Hi, hi, I'm Rose. Um, so yeah, so I'm Stephanie Rhodes, and I'm director at Gatti Ralph Rhodes, which um, Richard Gatti, Tom Ralph, and I founded in 2013. So it's a small architectural practice. Um, I've I've also worked in larger practice, studied in Sheffield and at London Met, and I've um, I also I've done some teaching. I'm currently also an external advisor to the ARB. So that's that's roughly where I'm at and what I do. Um, Let's start with that last one. What's a, <laughs> what's an external advisor to ARB? I... An external advisor to ARB. That sort of comes out. I used to do RIBA validation panels, which I started as a student. Um, which is um, visiting schools of architecture and reviewing the documentation for the ARB, uh, for the RIBA. Um, and uh, from that, I, I quite enjoyed that. I quite enjoy the the teaching aspect of architecture. I mean, as long as long as I don't have to be responsible for 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 anything longer term. Um, and uh, I. It, what I do for the ARB is is more desktop based. So actually, it's far less exciting in a way than the OABA validation panels where you actually get to see student work and you get to speak to, to tutors and you get to speak to um, students at, at that particular school of architecture. It's it's far more desktop based and you look at how the descriptions and documentation provided by courses um, match up with the de- requirement to li- deliver the ARB criteria. So it's, it's actually quite a dry job but it's I also quite enjoy getting into that, getting into that level of detail and really, um, you know, sort of cross cross referencing about eight different PDFs and and trying to figure out exactly where there might be holes or there might not be or where there could be in in, in sort of various scenarios that you run through. So it's sort of a very um, it's a very paper based and dry version of I guess what you do in a design process <laughs> to a certain extent. Right. And yeah, I, I quite enjoy it. So, so you were at Sheffield. You did both parts at Sheffield, and then you moved into practice down in London. Uh, I'm, no, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of interested in this journey that you took. So I don't know it yeah. fully, but um, no, I actually I only did my I did my part one in um, in Sheffield and my part two at London Met. Um, but actually, I, I I didn't know anything about architecture when I um, when I decided to study it because I studied, I grew up in Germany and. You know, you do your A-levels and uh, there just wasn't really any careers advice or anything like that. And I just quite enjoyed, um, I did maths and art as A-levels. We do lots of other subjects, quite enjoyed those two subjects. And then it was like, you know, the sort of cliche of what you can do with that. Oh, of course, you can do architecture. Um, And I, because, so my father's father's British and I, I grew up speaking English, so it was always there was this option to try out studying in in the UK on, on, on that sort of sense. Um, there, I, I literally just got the, the good university guide and applied to the universities. That, that's all 
that's all I had. And I didn't, and because I was applying from abroad, I didn't even need to um, turn up for interview or have a look at the universities. I, I didn't, I just didn't know anything about it. I literally just pressed a couple of buttons and, um, well, not even that. Yeah, there was doing a paper at that point, wasn't it? So I sent it all off, got a place at some point, um, and then turned up in Sheffield and was sort of, you know, from the small little market town that had sort of been restored out of an inch of his life, like driving down the motorway towards Sheffield. <laughs> <laughs> what have I done? Um, but I then, architecture was entirely different from what I imagined. I mean, I turned up to my first, to the first day, having sort of not read any of the documentation. I didn't have a pen on me. I didn't have a, yeah, I didn't have anything on me. I just turned up. Um, and when they asked us then to draw something, whatever it was in, in that, I just, you know, I, I didn't even realise that that was something you had to, you had to do. But it then turned out to be far more exciting than I, I could have imagined it to be. And and I really, um, yeah, I was incredibly lucky in that sense because it just fitted, fit, I just really enjoyed it. Um, and Sheffield, I mean, Sheffield at that time, I don't know what it is now. I, I probably mm. should, being an educator. <laughs> I'm guessing it's probably the same. Sustainability and social justice, really. Or it's yeah, very much. Yeah, it was it's very much, I was very much exploration. I was very lucky. Ruth Morrow, who was um, head of first year at that point, uh, very much made a point that she um, she wanted to do the first year differently. She wanted to run it as a sort of feminist, you know, it was like Jeremy Tiller, this approach of it being a feminist school of architecture, and she wanted to run it differently. So she gave us a talk right at the beginning that I still remember saying, you know, you can do this work uh, between nine and nine and six, um, and you leave at six, and you come at nine, and um, we're, you know, we don't support this sort of working culture that that has that is incredibly detriment, detrimental to architectural education. And, and actually also architecture work um, and that there was a lot of exploration and a lot of sort of overlap looking at at what architecture actually does and can enable rather than what it formally looks like and what um, and the sort of theoretical a dry theoretical framework that is somehow translated into into a proposal it's very much that sort of experiential um, explorative and 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 that was probably what was different from, from what I expected, right? Because I hadn't come across that. I I did my I did my year out in um, London in architectural practice. Um, that's quite a lot of housing. I was sort of thrown into that. Which one um, was that? That was Levitt Bernstein at Levitt Bernstein. Ah, again, but a very socially a very socially orientated yeah. practice as well, and with yeah, with, and with, with quite a lot of participatory work as well. So that is interesting. Yeah, I wasn't really involved with that that bit <laughs> when I was there. I did um, I did a lot of sort of drawing work, but that was a, that was a really good way of of learning that and getting mm. getting to grips with that because that was probably something I I didn't have that much experience of because I was all about doing the collage and and whatnot. Um, and after that, I I sort of had in a way had um had enough of of you know I've got I've got I can take another year and do something else and ended up. Um, first working on a building site in France for a bit and um, I travelled a lot in the next year and I was you know I was lucky that there was funding European funding available for for that work on the building site so that allowed me quite a lot of freedom um, it was a Leonardo da Vinci program um, and then I also I worked for um, Dina Petrescu from Sheffield in Paris for four months in um, which again was a very um, socially motivated um, practice. They're called their architecture office Atelier de Architecture Autogerie. Um, so self self generated self um, sort of grassroots up architecture where they worked in, in quite a um, impoverished neighbourhood on, on a community garden. And I was doing a lot of the the, the graphics work to sort of see what had what had happened to analyze what had happened over the pre previous years um and it's this whole experience of this sort of very socially engaged and very grassroots up and incredibly low paid no way i mean not that that's <laughs> one of the people that i work for but like it's very difficult to make that kind of work 
economically viable without you know you 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 to a certain extent have to rely on on, on sort of arts based or grant funding or sort of other sources of income that are not necessarily architectural you know, it, it it doesn't it doesn't work via fees and all of that and I was really interested in that but also I, I sort of at the end of at the end of those two years I, I sort of craved in a way a structure and and the more traditional approach in a way um Mm. I went to London Met, which again probably, I guess, sort of offers both. But actually, when I was there, I I continued down that sort of more socially um, engaged, less traditional architectural approach. And it's a really difficult one because I I think I I didn't have a lot of um, self confidence in sort of the in the design ability, and working in that um, so first also on the um, the India, and you know, you get the architecture of rapid change and scarce resources unit, and then uh, free unit with Robert Mull. It it never was about that. It it was less about the actual design as as about the sort of story about it and the, how you how you created. It. it wasn't there was something that was um, that I didn't. I don't know quite how to put that. It didn't. Um, it didn't help me gain more more confidence in terms of actually building things and and getting things done. Um, so, do you think like you 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 object you you had become kind of? I know what you mean, by the way. I know what you mean, and I've been kind of encountering this a lot recently in our architecture students, but also in myself because I bought hmm. I bought a really buggered up house and then thought well I'm a big strong lad I can sort this out and I've studied architecture for years and then presented with it Hmm. I've actually found that I found myself very removed from this practice is actually learning how to do the simplest thing like drill a hole straight that kind of stuff has actually become really removed. So, so you've got this kind of education, you're describing this kind of educational system, particularly, I mean, all the way across, or educational experience, which is extremely rich. I mean, fantastic um, schools you've gone to and practices you've worked for and um, Doña Petrescu and whatnot in Paris. But then, but then there's always this, is, am I right in thinking that there's this kind of nagging feeling that you don't know how to do stuff? In a way, and it was bizarre because actually I had worked on, you know, I had I had spent sort of four months on a building site, and I can I can do an ace sort of traditional um, sort of concrete floor and and whatnot that you know with a sort of smooth finish and all of that by hand. Uh, so it's not that I I you know I I probably had actually more experience of that than than some of the people I studied with, and I still felt entirely intimidated by all these you know by these sort of mainly dudes standing up and sort of ex- being quite bolshy about knowing knowing everything and knowing how mm. things is, are are built and how things are made and how things are put together and how you manage a site and how you do stuff and I sort of felt like a lot of this which is actually in in a way a lot harder the sort of practice that is um sort of more research-based and art-based and um participatory and trying to to, to sort of go bottom up um, it, it sort of felt I hadn't quite equipped me with this, this ability to to deal with this um, attitude that that I encountered or I felt. I mean, maybe I'm also I'm not I'm not doing people justice. I think this is also about myself, but it's. Um, well, I think yeah, I, I just found I that do, difficult. I don't um, think that I don't think that's a I don't think that's a um, an unreasonable critique. I think most architecture students. Would reason could reasonably acute could reasonably say that their architectural education had not equipped them for the kind of cut and thrust of the site, but also possibly not for the nature of orthodox practice. And that's not to say kind of boring hegemonic practice. It's just practice as practice. Like how do you get you know if you if you want to build a house in South London. There are certain things you need to know how to do, um, and uh, well, practice perhaps conceptual practice as we do it perhaps isn't the tool best tool for doing that. 
I don't think it is. I agree with that, but I also think it's not so much about knowing how to do it. It's about um, a lot of people that you think know how to do that don't know it either. And it is so much hot air in architectural practice. And it's so easy to sort of forget that um, everyone in a certain way is in the same boat. And it's all about being able to find things out and being confident in the way that you can find things out and you can get to that. And that um, that approach is entirely valid that um that it's not about sort of being you know that this sort of plustered up hot air spewing um approach that that is the thing that is actually really the problem and that, that i found well it's measuring hu- up against it's hubris. yeah yeah it's hubris isn't it there's a lot of hubris in in architecture that attitude of um yeah, performativity is the word that's kind of chucked around yeah. in sociology. Like you've got to be the architect, and to be the architect, you have to wear the right clothes and say the right things and have the right attitude and not get intimidated by. Well, you go onto a building site, and everybody then, everybody there knows more about it than you do. But you know what? The building sites I've never actually found, never had a problem with. So I mean, maybe I've just been very lucky, but mostly, I mean, not always, but generally. Um, the builders I've come across have been incredibly collaborative, been absolutely fine to to explain things if you ask the questions. I'm actually quite happy to to explain things once someone actually wants to mm-hmm. wants to know how things work, and have been 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 good good to work with on that level. I think that the problem is sort of more the middle management is the wrong word, but it's that it's 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 sort of the architectural culture in sometimes, and that you in that you have to present as as if you know everything and that you know most most of the times like sort of another example most of the time I've sort of I've sort of got to a point where I don't care if someone thinks that if that my questions questions are stupid or not I absolutely don't care because actually there's lots of people asking stupid questions and um, I might as well ask one as well, but there's a chance that it's not stupid and, <laughs> you know, just live with it. I don't, I don't care anymore if, you, if someone else thinks they're stupid, but um, that that's something that you sort of have to learn. And I don't think that's, that's necessarily always encouraged. I mean, architecture as well talks a lot about, oh, it's all about exploration. It's all about this, that and other, but I think, I still think there's sometimes the sort of thing that, um, you know, don't you know ask lots of questions and explore, but not the wrong ones. Not not in the wrong way. Not in not in this. You know, um, you have to do it in a way that fits in. You have to do it in a way that is that is a certain um, has got a certain polish or a certain sheen. Yeah, and and I think that's I've just I, I just don't care anymore. <laughs> so. No, I think it's quite. I, I, I mean, so you're kind of s- stuck as an architect, uh, certainly of the of the kind you describe between either being some kind of gentleman philosopher, gentlewoman philosopher, or you're some kind of shiny-shoed, sharp-suited operator. And, and you seem to me to be suggesting that you, prefer, you, you may have preferred a role that was slightly more artisanal, slightly more to do with the nature of architecture, as you say, as collaborative, as co-productive, and perhaps more hand wrought in a kind of way, more something to do with. Yeah, I think I think that's I think one of the things that is really important about our practice, like um, about Gatti and Richard and I, yeah, is that we, you know, the designs emerge very much out, out of conversation and argument and. Um, experiment and you know we build models and well Richard and Tom build models I I don't so much I I do drawings and um, we sort of all design in quite a different way and that that sort of complements really well and you know you do the sort of research on the materials and on the references and you have discussions and you just really you sort of bash this thing about you really push and pull and push and pull and then try things out and do something else and do do it again and, and sort of move it around and present it to the client and talk about it and present it at consultation and it's it's sort of um it's malleable it's something that that forms that emerges slowly that sort of sort of peels away um to to become what it then is and and where it sort of starts feeling like there, there is no other way that it could be in a way um 
and it's and it's not it's not so much a um you know there, there are philosophical discussions about whether things work this way and that you know and they they inform they inform that design process but for me it really is about it's about the thing it's about the the object and what what it does and I guess that sort of goes back to to that um you know being interested in about what architecture does and not so much what it looks like although I I am also I you know I think that there's an importance in um in in buildings and spaces being beautiful however that may be defined and I think there's there's a huge range of that definition but um that that's that's the sort of thing I enjoy about practice and and drawing in in these these other um other people um engineers the landscape the you know this client the residents if it's about housing the planners don't forget the planners well i think it the planning is really a difficult one because it shouldn't be but it depends so much on the individual planners that you that you deal with and we've worked with um, like Bethnal Green Mission Church, there was there was a very very good planner throughout up until we you know we, we then submitted and it was very it was very good and really um, was also very good at negotiating and and very good at dealing with these sort of different pressures that came came through that project. Mm-hmm. Um, on other projects we've worked with, we've equally had had good planners, but we also had some where it's very difficult to understand where they're coming from and why they're why certain things are being insisted on even if they don't make any sense and they don't will make even less sense in 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 the next few years in terms of climate change and you know I don't want to have a discussion about having to add more than you know more parking in a London borough when you know yeah when we're already providing like what I think is far too much parking. It's not even not providing any. It's just like supposedly not not enough, not like free cars per what. And it's just like uh, in a wet. Yeah. So there's. But it's again, it, it's very much that that negotiation that is is actually um, so it starts creating that proposal, and you're sort of there to to help it emerge in a way. Yeah. Don't know um, that makes sense. <laughs> no, no, I think it does. I think it's really interesting because because also, I mean, one of the other things that one of the peculiarities of um, of the way that we learn architecture, because I'm kind of interested in your motivations and and how your practice is motivated, and how the background story to your to your learning about architecture has influenced the way that you operate. And what's interesting is that you're describing. I think, although the rhetoric around your education is about collaboration and you know feminism and whatever it is but but okay. certainly anti-hierarchical um social political philo- philosophies what you do in architecture studio in in architecture school is always kind of sole authored monoliths mm. it's like that's what we teach people and then you're talking about how in practice you've developed this collaborative model that is genuinely collaborative, polyphonic, you might say, creating multi-voiced pieces. And I thought that was just a very elegant way of describing how you do it, how you take this thing and then you kind of like basically scrape away at it until you've all kind of found the object that sits comfortably within your... Yeah, I mean, it has to, it becomes a compromise, but a compromise that is better than it would have been if every single, you know, if any single voice had had sort of pushed their pushed their way through with force, mm-hmm. and and it's sort of orchestrating that compromise that that is really interesting. But it's also, I mean, I, I think the one thing that you don't learn in architecture school is that this sort of design process is what like ten percent of what you do. Mm. Like the rest, the rest of the time is actually this. You know, it's also design, but it's a design process of how to make things happen. Of um, of you know the sort of if, if you're working on smaller sites of, of the issues on sites if you're working on on on, on larger projects and about then it's about um, you know the codes and compliance and lead times and how that mm-hmm. you know affects costs and and it's um, it's th- th- there's a creativity in that that 
I sort of had to discover for myself that I didn't didn't really come across that much in architectural education and I think I I mean you know talk about also about the sort of um self-esteem or whatnot I, I was very lucky that I, I also ended up working working in in the projects office at London Met which was not so much architecture based but I, I had a I had a fantastic boss who was was really good at project management so so that was something I I sort of learned from her and in in South Korea where things just get built just like that just really really fast which is mm. I'd, I'd never that, built that, anything that was before. through the architecture research unit was it uh, it sort of was. There was a there was a collaboration between the Korea National University of Arts, the school, of, school and the School of Architecture about sort of running um, a joint course, like a sort of diploma unit, and that happened. And I went out there for three months to to support that. Um, but then I just I just stayed for an entire year and had just worked in an architecture office there. Um, I didn't. I, which, yeah, that's amazing. I lived in Seoul for a while as well. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah. um, uh, extraordinary place. And that, but it was also that sort of gave me actually being there, and then have suddenly having to produce like huge amounts of drawings and sort of. I mean, the working culture is, is punishing in a way, but there was also a huge amount of of other things that that work very differently and that that new are far more nuanced than than the sort of image you get of 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 the working culture. And far more supportive, and it just meant that I, I, I could come back um, to to the UK in 2010. So two years after, actually came back in 2011. But you know, three years after a major economic crisis that completely wrecked architectural education, and everyone I knew had sort of become unemployed. With you know, suddenly I had a portfolio of drawings that looked plausible, that were going to be built, that um, had sort of pushed me through that. Um, that actually the full picture of a sort of more commercial, more traditional set had sort of sort of compressed that into, into that into that year. That then allowed me to get a job with um Kalkusevich Carson and and sort of get get thrown into the housing deep end in that practice. And that then those two two, three years then allowed me to get to a point where um I felt there was there was I had something that would allow me to to set up practice with Richard and Tom. That that sort of skill skill of of that manoeuvring that um, that sort of more traditional world. Because mm. I do think it's important to be able to do that and to understand the the sort of economic realities of that and 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 how how it how it works. And you know, yeah, I was very lucky to to work at KCA for that time because it was incredibly exciting. We were working on big projects and. Um, that was still very much sort of resident driven. Mm. That's really interesting. We've talked. You talked a bit about how your design is, how your design has, I suppose, in a way, bounced off your education. Your education almost the way that you describe it. Your train, not education, that training almost seems to me to be a counterpoint a formative counterpoint to how actual practice, how you've actually ended up practicing. Is that fair or is that a complete misrepresentation? I'm very used to, by the way, doing complete misrepresentations of people. It's, like, it's my strongest skill. <laughs> I, I, think it's, I think it's sort of in part. I think, um, I think this, this the, the solo design and, and, and sort of even, you know, sitting, sitting at home designing things. I mean, it's, you know, um, that that is completely in in contrast to to how I work as a designer and quite a lot and with design and the wider sense even in terms of how I put documents together how I how I write um, and a lot of the my my confidence I I gained as as a designer or not came actually out of out of practice and possibly even sort of the more possibly the more traditional practice in a way but I would still say that this the the sort of more participatory and non-traditional practice is what has shaped what I'm interested in to a certain extent and and is something I go back to mm. now 
again it sort of come in a way come full circle to a certain extent but I feel I had to go through and be able to do these these other things and I think I can actually make good use of that and actually you know also see it slightly more critical you know the sort of need I think you know the economics are are a real issue because you know, one of the reasons I, I work as an architect is because I want to earn a salary and I want to um, have a pension and I want to have a decent quality of life. You know, it's not, it, I'm not, it, I don't think, you know, there's a sort of thing about artists seeing themselves as these, uh, architects seeing themselves <laughs> as artists where, <laughs> and people see them like that. And, you know, why should we pay you to to do things that you enjoy to do? And I was like, because this is hard, bloody hard work. And because, um you know, it's taking long enough to get the skills to do this mm. and because I want to have a salary, you know, I want to be able to pay myself. So, mm. I mean, there's, and, there's, two, yeah. there's two things I want to pick up on what you said because I think there's this really interesting idea about the, I, the, doc, the, the, the production of documentation being a process of design. And I fully agree with that. I'm more and more convinced that design is the thing that differentiates us as a species. I think you can leave, leave aside all the other things, but I think, I think everything is design. And that's obviously because, because this idea of there's a creative activity at play in all of these, you know, production of a design document might seem like the most boring thing in the world, but I think you're right. I think there is something designerly about it and perhaps those educational experiences you had certainly this is what I feel about my time at Sheffield is it meant is it, is it helped me understand the world through a designerly mentality and even the production of social processes that might produce the need to produce architecture could be the subject of design thinking and I and I found that I've, I've always found that very rewarding. So even though I've not done much with my design education in terms of working as an active designer, uh, productive designer, I've always found that kind of very rewarding. But there was this, yeah, so I'm kind of, I'm kind of intrigued by that. But before we recorded, I asked you about COVID and the, 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 this idea of working alone, working from home. And I... And I wondered whether you could think about that and the idea of design practice, talk about that and design practice again <laughs> and make it sound yeah, fresh. Okay. Yeah. Twice. I'll do my best. No, it's like, um, no, I mean, I guess, I guess what I was saying was that I actually, um, I mean, the first bit of lockdown was just really hard because I've got, I've got, um, I've got a small kid and not having a nursery place. And, you know, my partner was also working full time and actually, because um, it, because we actually were busy, it you know <laughs> we were sort of trying to each get in a full working day while also looking after looking after a kid at the same time and making sure that 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 all you know keeps going and that didn't work very well. That was really that was really hard and um, and I wasn't even homeschooling. That <laughs> like I don't even know how people how people survived that. Um, but once nursery was up and running again I, I I became quite comfortable sort of working at home and and you know doing design discussions over zoom and you know having our drawings and sketching over that over zoom and whatnot um and I was also you know I was slightly paranoid about covid and whatnot so I was probably one of the the last ones to be comfortable sort of being back in the office um and it took me some time to sort of get back to it and I sort of slipped into this comfort zone of, of working at home sort of your own stew in a way and it actually and that's exactly what it what it turned out to be I mean I sort of felt like I was being productive and that it was that was all you know going well but once I, I was back in the office and once we got back to this sort of more collaborative working I really you know it's just it's just it's just been such it's been such a relief and it works so much better and it's um and yes, you can combine that with home working. You can combine that with doing certain things at home because certain things do work better if you've got like, you know, can have the focus and there aren't discussions going on in the background. But not, you know, that's for short, that's for short periods. That's that's um 
for me at least the office and and working together and working with other people and popping by on the other side of the desk to to look at something and sketch it out with someone with two pens on the paper at the same time mm-hmm. um and arguing about something and then getting a book and looking it up or googling something or the third person sort of looking over the shoulder or just even you know with, with the people that work with us seeing being able to overhear some of the discussions on the phone so knowing what's going on being able to to jump in and support someone on something that just it just doesn't it it just didn't didn't work when all of us were working at home and as I said it doesn't mean that you can't be flexible and you can't work from home partially and whatnot but the it the main driver is for me is that is that collaborative working environment um and even uh, you know I think you can write some of the texts and whatnot that you need for your DNA statements or not or for whatever competitions and whatnot but then I, I personally need to discuss things again and put them visually on, on pages and, and start drawing that in again. And also I work better if I don't, if I'm not stuck working on the same thing forever. So, so having different things to work on that I can jump between is really helpful. Mm-hmm. And that's very difficult to, because you just, you just sort of skew in your own soup at home, don't you? You just, um, you go down rabbit holes trying to perfect things and it's very difficult to step out outside of that it's very difficult to step back because nobody's pulling you back in the office there's always there's always a you know you always have to that's why it's a way to sort of focus sometimes works better at home because there's always something else pulling you in the office but actually that is really um that is really productive it's an, that's an interesting point isn't it it's about this the efficiency that one gets at home because i felt this too it's like you can, I can power through a, a lot of work away from the distractions of the people that pay my wages, which are the students. I can get through a ton of work. I, I'm a bit slow in the mornings, but, but when I get into my running, it, I'm sort of unstoppable. And, and, and I'm not convinced much of it's that good. Hmm. That there's a kind of, uh, and I don't have to do much design work. I do m- most of my design work I give away for free to students on their tutorials, little darlings. Um, but there's a kind of inefficiency to collective action, which is possibly how good quality collective action happens. Like collective design work, it's the, it's the kind of democratic principle, isn't it? Democracy is inefficient by design, and that's what's good about it. It's like it slows down. Yeah, it slows it slows down you have to think about things you have to have discussion you have to justify it you you know it's 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 six of us in the office I mean generally you know that's that's probably a bit much but a design review whatever is at least three um and there's different voices and you have to justify and you have to sort of build up that story and the logic behind it and fine-tune it and and you suddenly you know if you come to snags you have to really really sort of think about what you know what what is the problem what is actually the essence here what are you discussing what are you trying to do why doesn't it work and and that's why I I think a lot of this other work you know the 90% that isn't this image of, of you sort of sitting there with a pen and, and doing a design work but all of the other stuff on the, the dream you the mean discussion. the dream <laughs> yeah, the <dream>, exactly um <laughs> is actually also design work because that's exactly what you do you, you sort of step back, you look at what, what's the problem? How can you solve? Is there a different way of looking at it? It what happens if I drop one of the one of the restrictions or one of what's when I shift one of these parameters around? What happens at that point? Um and you really um it's a lot easier to do that in in collaboration than it is by mm. yourself. Yeah, or yeah. to test it, you know, to really test it, to really push it. Because you you know, no single person can can think of enough ways to test something no um thoroughly no. so no i think you're right and i think i think this whole i mean if everything's designed then all design is collaborative and the 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 the, the, the bullshit idea that you've got that you can you can do things i mean i liked teaching on zoom i got quite good at teaching on teams we were on microsoft teams <laughs> <laughs> I know Zoom's Zoom's cheap replica, um, but I was using like these digital sketch pads. I got quite good at it. It was quite good. I, I you know I could get through the tutorial. I had a clock in the corner. It was twenty minutes. That's what they got. 
and I was efficient as hell, but I'm really not sure that they got the best of me. And certainly they didn't get, students didn't get the best design education. And I'm just, yeah, so I'm kind of interested in this. So this kind of collaborative idea, but they, also this idea of slowness. There's a wonderful paper by a, a, an architect couple called um, Billy Sen and Todd Williams. They're based, I think, in um, New England somewhere, maybe in Philadelphia or maybe in New York. And it's called On Slowness. And it's a beautiful kind of rumination on the value of this process. I mean, they also talk about the use of things like drawing. Like you've mentioned this idea of getting around a piece of paper and like drawing out each other's ideas. And maybe it's getting around a screen, but there's a, there is a huge value in that, that activity. And I think we were blessed in the, in the, we were the kind of last moment in architectural education where drawing boards were normative like yeah my undergrad was hand drawn yeah yeah I'm, i i mean that i went into a practice after to be honest and they still had we still did a lot of hand drawing but um but they by, by the time i left i was there five years and by the time i left it had all gone computerized mm -hmm. almost all almost all of it there was still a little bit of hand drawn stuff but um i think you know, I don't think that's exclusive, though, because I mean, we we work in we work in Revit, we work in Revit from the outset. Um, but it, it is, you know, it's a tool like any other, and you you have to just really get it to do what you want it to do. So it becomes more like a pen and less like something that sort of shoves you around and forces you to to do things. And it's um, it it sort of takes time to get it to that point or to manage it or a certain level of experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is that is the challenge in in architectural education that um you know students do need to be up to speed if at all possible on these skills it's, it is a benefit to mm -hmm. to know these programs but these programs are so um good at getting them you know getting getting you to do what they want rather than the other way around and forcing mm -hmm. you to look at things in the way that they want that it's it's very difficult to to sort of bridge that because I think the sort of power over these, over Revit and other tools like that, to, to do what you want comes with experience and comes with the skill of, of, of managing that program and mm. um, comes with design experience. And yeah, I, I'm not sure how to, how that gap can, can be bridged, you know, sort of all of, of tutors that manage to do that and manage to mm. teach that. Your Bethnal Green Mission Church is a lovely piece of work. Very interesting. Thank you. Yeah, I know it is. It's a lovely piece of work. It's probably a significant piece of work in its quiet way with a lovely, lovely roof. And I've used that roof, actually. I've used it in my teaching. Um, and I just wanted to know about, I suppose, a little bit about how, how, what, what, like, what idea sort of undeniable as a piece of space, space making, piece of architecture, piece of urban green. Was it underpinned by any significant, like specific kind of ideas? I'm always interested in the ideas that underpin architecture. And I, or was, that, was it a very pragmatic kind of spatial solution to a kind of very pragmatic client? I mean, for goodness sake, it's a church. It's got to have some philosophy in it. <laughs> Well, first of all, our client wasn't wasn't that straightforward. So the client was actually a partnership between the developer and the church. Uh -huh. So there were two different voices in that. Um, nevertheless, sort of what we generally do, and we we work a lot with churches and and sort of faith community community groups, is um, we went through a process to sort of try to understand what what sort of being a church meant to them. We talked to them. Um, we use two different local examples for that. So Bethnal Green is very close to um, Christchurch, Spitalfields, Hawksmoor, um, you know, beautiful grand church, end of end of a um, avenue and all about the views down the avenue and the sort of separateness and of God and the sort of power that comes with that and whatnot and use mm -hmm. of war. Um, but it's also very close to what is now um, the Brick Lane Mosque which used to, was built around it's a couple of years later to, to the Hawksmoor Church. Um, so it's built very, pretty much at the same time and um, built very much as a, as a part of the street. And it's got certain civic signifiers of the pediments. Um, 
but it is it is part of that there's a sort of urban continuity with it and it was built as a mixed-use building so it actually had weavers weavers lofts um it, it sort of weavers um studios under the loft they could get the light in mm. um and uh we we used those two examples of, of sort of ways that you can you can present you know you can do church you can um, you can understand yourself as a church, and the um, the leadership of the church and the sort of representation. They were very clear that they wanted that second one. They wanted to be part of um, the, the sort of urban form. They didn't want to stand separate of it. They didn't want to be a set piece. They wanted to be part of an, of of the urban urban block and the urban grain, and um, that's how they understood themselves as a as a community and as a as and how they understood their their mission and their their faith mm. so so that was really really helpful and that sort of set the tone for us approaching the site um in a way as a background architecture even though it does have you know it does it does have certain elements that set it apart from you know a, if it were just in quotation marks a, a residential building there is there is a clear community use that ground for there are certain elements that show that it is a church but it it doesn't stand apart um and it it references um sort of local architectural language but it is it tries to sort of fit as background to that rather than as an object mm. um and I mean, it's also it's a it's a difficult site because it's at the head of of Paradise Gardens, listed park. It's got Grade One listed St John the Lesson Bethnal Green next to it, the Grade Two star, I think. I think the Museum of Childhood Conservation Area. I mean, it was there, there was that as well. Um, it needed to to sit comfortably with with all of those um, architectural gems and, and not try to you know we didn't want it to shout in any way but we wanted to be to be able to hold itself so that that was sort of the how we approached it I guess from a sort of architectural language but there's also then um a lot of there were lots of different things that we needed to achieve within the brief so it has to serve a lot of different activities so the church undertakes um, it needs to obviously have a worship space that needs to be at at the heart of, of what the church wanted or what the church is. But they also wanted to to have a cafe that um, functions as a you know an open door in a way, and that also allows them to keep the church open and and have some income and make the church accessible and, and provide um, a sort of community hub. They they do things like food bank, night shelters. Um, mm homework clubs youth work and all of that also needed to somehow happen they support charities so there's also offices in the buildings where um, they rent out or allow charities to to have office space and the, the site itself was very compact for all of that and on top of that and none of that would have happened if it didn't stack up financially so if there wasn't enough residential accommodation to make that work so the, the other absolute crucial part of the brief was to get enough flats onto that site. Yeah. Like as much as possible, because the more we got on, the more um, would also be available for the church. Yeah. And and it was, you know, at the moment, it's um, it's three stories of community use, use that is funded by four stories of residential. And actually that one of those stories includes a, a large four bedroom vicarage that, belongs to the church again so it's mm -hmm. it's actually three and a half and three and a half stories and that's that's actually quite challenging to make work yeah um so that was that was another and that, that was one of the ways that was basically how we how we got the job as well because um Richard knew the developer and, and she had sort of been talking about how she, she'd done some previous studies and it just had never never really stacked up and they somehow there hadn't been enough accommodation and um mm -hmm. they'd gone for a pre-app and didn't like it planners didn't like it so we had we had a quick look at it and managed to get quite a bit more quite a few more flats into it and it it looked like it would be something that might be acceptable in planning terms 
that's that's how that's how we got the job as well yeah i'm just i mean it's the 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 idea the model of the church with this kind of like um this this sacred space this lovely elegant window Mm. a great great roof nice piece of gothic do love a bit of gothic (laughs) yeah i mean it's, it's you know the, the actual church it doesn't actually even have it doesn't have a cross in it but it references all of these church elements and that that allows it to be um used for all sorts of different functions without that being an issue at the same time it is a church and it is a it is a worship space and um the church windows are we we worked with um Coralie Bickford Smith who's um who's an artist that does a lot of illustration and and uh, sort of graphic artwork Mm-hmm. And yeah, so so the church windows are actually she she developed those and developed that pattern that sort of slowly fades mm. fades up and um, it it works really well with the sort of shadows of trees coming through as well. Um, it's it's very much that that central space is also it's physically in 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 the centre of the building, and it allows the basement um, community spaces which would otherwise if, if it didn't, you know, have to have that double height space and without that double height space, they would be far less, they would work far less well because it wouldn't have, with this double height space that brings lots of daylight down and you've got a low space under the church and then you've got this double height space and together that works, that, that sort of contrast works. Um, and we had, we were limited in, in how far we could go down for, for all sorts of reasons and also efficiency of of um how we were using the the basement walls of the existing building and and whatnot so it, it was really an exercise of balancing all these different things and making it a very spatially efficient building um overlaying all these different uses and at the same time providing sort of making that work through the spatial quality so having that contrast having different types of spaces having um having that double height space next to a quite low single height space that balances and makes that that work again um that that was and, and to come to those solutions it was quite it was quite a you know this is not something that just sort of happens this is something you work through again and again and again yeah this is not yeah a, i can yeah. imagine um yes I mean that's a really nice description i mean it's it's quite it's just very quite interesting talking listening to you talk about the kind of yeah, the, the practical, um, the way that I suppose design thinking leavens the dough of the economic spatial realities of architecture. I just think it's quite, it's, a, it's something we don't encounter much in architectural education, but you don't encounter it much when you're reading stuff about architectural theory either which tends as we you know when we started talking tends towards this kind of very highfalutin kind of very um i suppose unreal might be a reasonable word to use about the way that we we teach architecture but i just wanted to i just want we've got about five minutes left before this blasted program shuts us out again i just wanted to to hear your reflections on or perhaps some thoughts on what you see as your role as a younger practice you were until quite recently officially a young practice <laughs> but we're not sure what the cutoff point i i mean you know i'm 40 i'm not i don't feel like it's, it's sort of oh, middle it's okay. age, I mean, a middle age of a kid i mean it's like i, I don't feel like um no, My life I is think, the opposite of rock and roll. <laughs> no, but architecture's got a slow maturation, hasn't it? It's got a very, very slow maturation. We are long, a long gestation. Um, yeah. So, I mean, what, what, what? I mean, what, what do you see as, I suppose, the role of your practice? I mean, obviously, as you say, it's to produce buildings, and it's to pay you a salary. To do work. I think, you know, and I think that's. That's but in what a way... is in relation to the broader profession? Like, I, I'm, ki- I'm kind of interested in the way that you're... Maybe this is not something that normal people think about, but I'm kind of interested in the way that um, younger practices are... Like, so you're a practice in London. London is this vast machine, and there's 
big architects and big developers that do big things. And then there's medium-sized and they do medium-sized things. And then there's smaller practices like your own. And I'm kind of in, and, and most of the practices are small. Most architectural practices are small practices or SMEs anyway. Mm. And I kind of and just like, mm. go on. Sorry, no, but you're, you're, you're on SME until you're like, in architectural terms, you're huge basically. I mean, you know, I just don't know the definition of the heart. It's like 50 employees or something. It's like, oh, yeah. you know, it's, it's kind of, the definition is sort of like, I, I don't, I, like, you have to, you have to be really big to not be an SME um, in architectural terms. It. So, but I don't know. I mean, it's, um, I think there's a lot of wider responsibilities that the profession has and absolutely needs to deal with. And I don't think that's that's particularly um, if you're a sort of younger practice or an established practice or not. I think it's just things that absolutely need to be dealt with and that are obviously um, sort of climate change potential, the impact of, of the construction industry and building, because that's just something that that stares us all in the face. And every time you you know, you design something, you you make decisions on on that, and your decisions have consequences, or you hope that your decisions have consequences. I mean, there's there's a sort of discussion about how much work you do that never gets built, but um, but that is in a way a consequence as well because it it means that something doesn't happen in a in a certain way, and that doesn't mean necessarily mean saving. So it's it's that is something that is absolutely essential and has to be pushed forward. Mm. And um, the other issue is is representation and diversity and and gender balance. And to a certain extent, uh, you know, we we try to we try to do our best in sort of employment policies and support, and and um, we we try to, you know, not have stupid working hours and and all of that kind of thing. I, yeah, that was a question. I that was that was a question I was going to ask. Have you managed to ca- ca- persist with the? Start at start at nine and finish at six, kind of. Pretty much, yeah. Have you? Pretty much, yes. I mean, it's not always, because, yeah. but in in a relatively relatively consistent manner. So, I, for example, I work four days a week, and I I can't start before nine thirty, nine fifteen, nine thirty, and I can't finish much later than six, simply because I've got to do stuff at home and pick up and bring to nursery and whatnot and that's not going to change for the foreseeable future so it's just it's just um and yes of course that I means sometimes you you finish stuff off or you you have to and sometimes it also means you know that means that we you know it's, it's difficult sometimes economically it's just it's difficult to get people to 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 sort of Pay, pay for the amount of work that you do or you mm-hmm. want to do on a job to to do it well and and to balance that i mean what, um, could, the, what could the industry do so if 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 the riba or the arb could make a change that would make so these these issues around i think inclusion are very important you know the issue particularly of female representation within practice um for one amongst many other um sort of issues that architecture faces um what i mean would, i what would be the thing that we would want to see changed and the thing i want to, to i want to see change is that it's everyone's responsibility you know it's not mine as a, as a as a woman to um constantly talk about it or remind people or push people or or, or be an example or you know um be heard and say important things. First of all, I want to be able to say stupid things without anyone raising an eyebrow because that's what happens with men generally. Um, what, they raise an eyebrow? <laughs> no, no, but you know what I mean? It's, like, it's that sort of thing where, you know, it's it's important that you're listened to in meetings and you've got important things to say and all of that. But I think actually I might, every now and then, I might say something that is completely idiotic, but I want that to be taken as important as, <laughs> as it would do when, when it, if, you know, if a man said something idiotic. Like why why do why do you have to live to a sort of higher standard? I mean, oh. and I think men need to step up. I mean, absolutely need to step up. I mean, you look at at the amount of time that you know men take out for childcare and whatnot, and they just you know there is shared parental leave, and people don't take it. And it's just like you know, just do you know men need to just do do their bit as well, and not yeah, yeah. 
you know being an ally ally or whatever it's, it's an active thing it's not just a not standing in the way of it's actually actively supporting equality and, and also diversity so it's just it's just a sort of more being aware of that I think I'd, I'd, yeah. I'd really appreciate that if that was if some of the um, policies were not so much about supporting women to step forward but getting men to step up because I think yeah that would be good yeah anyway but I mean, yes, yes. I, I, <laughs> Many I, I, went over. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I mean, I, I wrote down quite when we, uh, about a third of the way through, you were talking about planning and you were talking about, you were talking about some of the, the various kind of ways that your architectural education has perhaps, and your architectural training hadn't perhaps prepared you for the kind of practice that, is actually kind of common, you know, is the way that architecture is done. It's the way that cities get built. It's the way tech buildings get built. And I come across a phrase of a colleague of mine emailed me earlier today about demystifying architecture. And it seems to me that, that this is kind of something that if I was to be annoying and try and sum up what we've spoken about, there's a sense, isn't there, that what architectural education or architectural training does is try and create this mystique around what we do. And what I heard you talking about when you're talking about the Bethnal Green Mission Church is actually something that sits in this real world, which is both mysterious insofar as it's philosophical and it's to do with aesthetics and people and liturgy and all of this kind of stuff and history and culture and context and urban grain and lovely romantic things. But it's also this very kind of practical and everyday thing. And I kind of really like this idea of your practice perhaps being a, a kind of good example of a demystification. like good quality design sits somewhere between these two worlds of the abstract world of thought and the everyday reality of having to get as many flats on a site in Bethnal Green because, well, it's on, it's in E2 for crying out loud. It's got to be big. It sits on a, it sits on a you know, it sits on a tube station. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I think that's, but I think that's where, that's where, good architecture happens because like you, you have to get so many different things together and it's difficult to get things built and you know and at the moment probably even more so than ever because it's someone has to pay for these things and and yes. it's um that's not getting any better so it's um I think you're right I think there is that you know I'm very honored to, to sort of um that, that you think that that we managed to do some of that but um I do think it's it's just not architecture is so most so in, in a vast majority it's not about sitting by yourself somewhere drawing the same thing again and again and again it's just that, that's absolutely not and if you if you're doing that that is actually really not good for for your architectural practice because it's it's it doesn't get you forward. It doesn't doesn't get you along this this road to actually making making something reality. Mm. Um, I don't think. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, Sounds I, good. I, I guess that's it. <laughs> Thank you ever so much, Steph. I've very much enjoyed speaking to you. I found it very interesting, very engaging. Well, thank you very much for for sort of inviting me to to join you on this on this chat i really enjoyed it and um and it's funny yeah. to, it's funny to get people to um to reflect on their practice is one of the things that i wanted to do is get people to reflect on their practice not because of some kind of perverse desire of mine but i think that practitioners are kind of like the forgotten theorists you kind of get theorist practitioners like Rem Coolhouse and mm. people like that and 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 they're held up in great esteem uh, Danny Liebskind. But it's, uh, 
and then you get theorists and they just theorize and then i think i think there's a lot of meat in talking to practitioners particularly young practitioners like yourself um because if you there it is again <laughs> yeah, if you if you're not young then i'm really old um, <laughs> really nice to talk to you same here good to see you thank you for having me and uh yeah anytime well i thought that was very joyful Thank you hugely to Stephanie for her input and for being so willing to tell her story. Please check out the podcast descriptions for links to her practice, Gatti Routh Roads, and her professional links. And don't forget to like, subscribe, follow and share. A is for architecture. Lots and lots and lots. Cheers.